you know, throughout the history of the world, and as long as, as leaders have existed in this world, there have always been a need to make decisions. And so whether uh, uh, we are living in a democracy or a monarchy, a leader would always be someone who would surround himself with advisors. And a wise leader will surround himself with wise advisors. And a foolish leader, on the other hand, surrounds himself with advice that he wants to hear. Advisors are there for such a leader to only affirm something that he has already decided. Uh, the job and the responsibilities of a leader uh, can sometimes tend to be overwhelming, and therefore the more inputs such a leader has, uh, the better placed he or she is to make a good decision. Now that's plain common sense. Now advisors don't uh, have a badge around their neck declaring if they are a wise or a foolish advisor. We wish uh, they had such a badge. But an advisor is known by the, uh, uh, by the advice he or she gives. Now, in the normal circumstances of life, um, the advice given may or may not carry much significance. But if you think of a crisis situation, uh, then the advice given and received is critical to the success of the mission. Now, truth be told, whether you're a leader or not a leader, uh, decision-making is a part of all of our lives. Uh, we're all involved in decision-making. Not only are we involved in decision-making, but difficult and challenging circumstances are a reality in a fallen world. That's the world we live in. So whether you're a leader or not, challenging and difficult circumstances are a part of your life. And emergencies in such a life circumstance can tend to be the real test of what we have truly learned. See, when crisis is at your doorstep, who do you turn to for advice, for counsel, uh, for help? Now, it's important that you know who you turn to, and it's important who you turn to, because your decision will not, reveal, not only reveal your heart, because, but because how much help you get depends on who you ask. So when the pressure is high, when the circumstance just seems to overwhelm us like a wave, who we turn to for help and wisdom can make the difference between a right decision and a wrong decision. What your mind and heart is constantly and consistently exposed to has, one of, uh, has influence on how you make a decision. And the chapter we will study together today, uh, 2 Kings chapter 3, is a timely reminder and a refresher course on who should a believer turn to when he or she needs help. And I think we all need such a reminder. Here's how I I've titled our lesson for tonight uh, or today, Who Do You Turn To? Who Do You Turn To? We look at all the 27 verses that we have for us today. Here's how I would summarize our lesson, or the sermon theme, if you will. A victorious uh, Christian life is not possible by trusting in human abilities or by partial obedience to the Lord. A victorious Christian life is not possible by trusting in human abilities or partial obedience to the Lord, but by a total and a complete trust in the Lord and in obeying his revealed world, word. A complete and total trust in the Lord 
and in obeying his revealed word. You know, we have been learning that 2 Kings actually continues the tragic account of two nations that find themselves on a collision course into captivity. That journey began when the kingdom split in 1 Kings. And by the time we come to the end of 2 Kings, we, we see that the collision is in full effect. Uh, they are there. That's how the book ends. And so, as we look at this chapter, we want to learn and understand and be reminded of who we should turn to. Now, first of all, uh, let's begin reading the first three verses as we consider a partial commitment. A partial commitment. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became the king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and his mother. Uh, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal, which, is, which his father had made. Now some pronounce it Baal, uh, but this is another pronunciation. This is the Hebrew pronunciation. Uh, there is the American pronunciation, and then there's the right pronunciation. So, <laughs> so this is Baal. No, you can pronounce it however you like, but just know that I mean Baal. <laughs> Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin, and he did not depart from them. We see a partial commitment as we consider these three verses. We ended last week's account as we saw the commissioning of Elisha and the passing of the baton from Elijah to Elisha as the prophet. And the author of Second Kings really does not waste any time in making it clear uh, that the baton had indeed been passed. How do we know that? We see that at the end of last chapter where some lads in the name, uh, some lads really tease Elisha, call him bald, and Elisha then curses these lads in the name of the Lord, and two female bears come out of the woods and tear these lads apart. Are we not to make fun of the one or the thing that represents God? From there, Elisha goes to Carmel, and now he's back in Samaria. We're told that at the end of chapter 2. And then he, he is back in Samaria, as we're told there, and it is in Samaria that we pick up our story today. We're told that there is a new king in town, a uh, new king of Israel. His name is Jehoram, and sometimes he's called as Joram, J-O-R-A-M, because to, to differentiate him from another king that is a king of Judah by the same name and uh, ruled in the same period. Now, Jehoram, we are told, is a son of Ahab. Now, as soon as you hear the name Ahab, you begin to feel a sense of a despair, or perhaps even as you know him well, uh, perhaps anger as well. Ahab, uh, you see, is, uh, is introduced to us in 1 Kings 16, and he's introduced to us as the son of Omri, uh, who did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's how Ahab is introduced. More than all who were before him, the text tells us, chapter 16, verse 13, 1 Kings. And as if that was not enough, we are further informed that he did more to provoke the Lord the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel who were before him. He was an evil man, a very, very evil man. And so when you read in verse 2 that he did, that is, Jehoram did evil in the sight of the Lord, you're not very surprised. Uh, 
you you probably have a sense of deja vu where you you say to yourself, "Here we go again." I mean, the apple doesn't fall too far from it, the tree, right? And that's what we have here in verse one and verse two. Though it tells us he, he was not like his father and mother, and that immediately adds a sense of hope. And so what did he do differently? It says he put away the sacred pillar of Baal. Notice it does not say destroyed the pillar, but he just merely removed it. He put it away and he locked it in a store room. We'll come, come back to that at the end of chapter 10 where Jehu de destroys that. But for now, he's just uh, removed it from the presence of the Israelites. It may be that he has seen what happened to his brother Ahaziah, uh, who fell from his lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria. That's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 1. And what does Ahaziah do? Instead of calling on the name of the Lord, he actually calls on Baal Zebub to check if he would recover from his sickness. Uh, this is the brother of Jehoram. What an utter disrespect of the God of the Bible. And Elijah confronts him and says to him, Is there no God in Israel? because of which you had done this, you're not going to come down from the bed. That's where you shall die, and that's what happens with him. Ahaziah, his brother, is described as one who served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done. So that's his brother's description. He has seen what has happened to his brother who worshipped Baal. Now Jehoram knows this, and he knows and has seen the reign and the end of his own father, Ahab, and his mother, uh, Zezebel, who worshipped Baal. So he's seen all of that, and so he knows what he should do. What should, should he do? He, he, well, he should remove and he should destroy, but he just removes. Good move, but don't get your hopes too high. Notice verse 3. It says, Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Who was Jeroboam? He was the first king of the divided kingdom of the northern kingdom, which he made Israel to sin, it says. On the one hand, he was better than his brother and his father. And on the other hand, you can sense the frustration of the biblical author as he writes, for all the relative goodness of Jehoram, he clung to the sins. He held on to the sins of Jeroboam. And just in case that is not clear, he adds, he did not depart from them at the end of verse 3. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis writes about this, these three verses. He says, for all the qualification of verse 2, don't you sense the impatience of God's, of the Bible's nevertheless here? Now, the Bible is never satisfied with anything less than total submission. It's as if our writer throws his pen down in disgust and hollers, that's not enough. It won't do to go around saying it's not as bad as it could be. Anything less than thoroughgoing, faithful, first and second commandment worship just won't cut it. End of quote. Well put. Uh, wh what is the lesson or an application that we can draw from this? Uh, well, I have it on the screen already for us. Uh, folks, there is no partial commitment when it comes to the Lord. Either you are all in or you're not. I'm not saying we will not struggle with sin. I'm not saying we are to be perfect. I am saying you and I need to be fully 
committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and let the chips fall where they may. A life that is totally committed to God, someone has said, has nothing to fear, nothing to lose, and nothing to regret. So anyone desiring to follow God only has one standard. And what is that? Well, our Lord tells us that in Matthew 22, 37. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Uh, which is to say, when it comes to following the Lord, uh, there is no such a thing as partial commitments. No partial commitments allowed. No half-hearted efforts. Uh, regarding those who are half-hearted, our Lord uh, records, has John record his, in his letter to the Laodiceans in uh, Revelation 3, remember, uh, he says to them, to the angel of the church at Laodicea, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. And so because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, there is no such a thing as partial commitment with the God of the Bible. Secondly, verse 4 to verse 10, as we think of a wrongly placed confidence, now, Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder and used to pay the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. We think, as we look at this passage, a wrongly placed confidence. And now we are introduced to attention in the story. We are introduced to Mesha, king of Moab, who was a sheep breeder, and he was a vassal of the king of Israel. Uh, that is, he used to pay some taxes uh, to the king of Israel. And what was that? 100,000 lambs and, 100, uh, uh, and the wool of 100,000 rams. When the king who made them a vassal, which is King Ahab, the father of Jehoram, when he dies, Mesha thinks to himself, this is a good opportunity uh, to test if the new king is determined and powerful to get me to pay taxes to him. And so what does he do? He rebels, verse 5. But what does Jehoram, the evil king of Israel, do? Verse 6. He goes out of Samaria and musters all the strength he can gather. He gathers all his troops together to fight against this king of Moab. Um, what does Jehoram display? He displays a confidence in the flesh. A misplaced confidence, really. He's so godless uh, that he does not feel any need to call on the God of his fathers, the God of David and Solomon, the God who rescued his ancestors from Egypt. No, his confidence is in his own abilities. And so he responds for at least two reasons. Uh, reason number one, he responds because of the provision of all the lambs and wool really contributed to the economic health of the country. And so this was a financial decision. But there's another reason why he responds. If he does not teach Mesha a lesson at this time, very soon some of the other vassals will follow the same path of rebellion. So he has to respond. But he also realizes he cannot do this on his own and that he needs help, verse 7. And so he reaches out to Jehoshaphat, the king of the southern kingdom. He sends a message to the king of Judah, the king of Moab, he says, has rebelled against me. Um, will you go with me to fight against Moab? And to that request, Jehoshaphat responds 
yes, I will go with you. I am as, your, as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Uh, that is, we share the similar responsibilities in our kingdoms. Both of us are kings. My people are your people in the sense that we, ha we share the same ancestors. And then uh, there's no reason for me not to share my resources with you. And so my horses are your horses, he says. Now, who is Jehoshaphat? Well, he is described as a good king. If you were to look at the entire entirety of his reign, he's described as a good king. In fact, in 2 Chronicles chapter 17, this is how Jehoshaphat is described. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father David uh, and his earlier days and did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father, followed his commandments, and did not act as Israel did. So he was a good king, and his overall reign is described as good. But he did have a tendency to form alliances with wicked kings of the northern kingdom, uh, which he does in this case. Now, the alliance itself should not shock us, but what should shock us even more, that he too initially does not seek the wisdom and counsel of God. Uh, there is no place here where it says Jehoshaphat reached out to a prophet, asked for God's word and advice. No, it says he just responded. And so he does not reach out to God for help and wisdom, just like Jehoram. There's a high possibility that Jehoram's life and his habits are rubbing off on Jehoshaphat. Uh, this conflict, according to their understanding, was really not such a big deal. I mean, uh, three armies against one army should be a piece of cake, right? Do we really need to uh, invoke God? Do we really need to disturb him at this stage? Do we really need to involve God? And so what does Jehoshaphat's heart reveal? It reveals a heart that has placed its confidence in man. Misplaced or wrongly placed confidence. And so verse 8, Jehoram asks Jehoshaphat, which way should we go? He answers the way of the wilderness of Edom, which is the southern part of the Dead Sea. Uh, it's the best way to attack the kingdom of Moab. Moab is strong on the northern side, so it's best to attack from its weakest side, which is the southern part. So that's what they do. This is a shrewd strategy by these two kings, attack at the weakest points. Now here's an interesting thing, not a direct application of the text, but a helpful piece of information that I hope you would find encouraging. You know, for a long time, secular scholars actually denied uh, the events in this chapter and denied the kings uh, that are mentioned in this chapter ever existing. But all of those doubts were put to rest when a French Anglican archaeologist by the name F.A. Klein discovered a stone, and it's now known as the Mesha inscription or Mesha steel, or even the Moabite stone, and he found that in the Ban, Jordan, on the stone which is currently preserved in the Louvre Museum in Paris, France, I listed the details actually of this particular chapter. And now de these details are presented from Mesha's perspective, and so it presents Mesha in a good light. And uh, it mentions that he was the one who defeated the armies of Judah and Israel and Edom. Now that's very interesting. It's very interesting because all the archaeological discoveries connected with the Bible only end up affirming what is in there. Now even if we disagree who won the battle, it's a huge affirmation of the existence of these kings at the same time. 
Uh, remember, this event took place almost 3,000 years back. And so we have archaeological evidence now to back the existence, at least, of these three kings. Now, this also is actually the earliest stone that is available that has a reference to the God of the Israelites. Uh, here's one sentence from the stone. Omri was the king of Israel, and he oppressed Moab, and I took the vessels of Yahweh. That's the first reference to Yahweh, the God of Israelites, uh, in an archaeological evidence. Uh, that should just continue to affirm our confidence in what is preserved in the Word of God for, for us. Now, again, this is not a lesson or an application, but hopefully that's encouraging to you as you think of these events. Let's keep moving. The readers think that the first tension in the event is resolved until you reach verse 9. Oh, it's in verse 9. It says, The king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they made a circuit of seven days' journey, and there was no water for the army or for the cattle that followed them. And they traveled for seven days in the desert, and there is no water for the army nor for the animals. Now, no water means you're dehydrated, right? And if you're dehydrated, there's not much you can do. I don't know if you've experienced that before. But if you've traveled to Israel, you know the first instruction you receive, is, and the one that is repeated consistently by your guide, is that you need to keep yourself hydrated. Drink a lot of water. And that, might be, that might seem simple to us, but if a body does not have enough water, you can experience tiredness and, and fatigue, uh, even lack of energy, and in extreme circumstances, muscle cramps, confusion, and even death. Uh, so not being hydrated can have extreme consequences on your body. So it's a big, big deal. I remember when we went to Israel in 2018 uh, with the seminary that I was a part of, um, we went on this uh, uh, mountain called Masada, and we were coming down only to find out that one of our uh, one of the ladies that was traveling with us was missing. And uh, we, we looked everywhere for her, couldn't find her. And at the end, we just said we need to get to the next location, so we started driving. And between those two lo locations, we found this girl actually walking on the road. We did some medical tests and found out that she was dehydrated and just confused. Uh, and so in the context of Israel, this has high implications. They, they did not have water, and uh, that can lead to a lot of other unintended consequences. And it's at this stage, in verse 10, Jehoram suddenly remembers the sovereignty of God. Here's a man who denies, uh, 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 he, he does not reach out to God in the first place, but when troubling times come, he remembers the sovereignty of God. Notice what he says in verse 10. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. It's striking to see so many deny that there is even a God, but when something goes wrong, they're quick to lay the blame at his feet. You think of atheists, uh, they deny that God exists, but they hate him nevertheless. God is suddenly real for Jehoram, and he invokes the name of God only to blame him for their situation. Now, Jehoram is not only an example of someone who displays misplaced confidence, but even the confidence that he places in the Lord is for the wrong things. Uh, for him, uh, Jehoram is the one who decides what God should and should not do. Uh, for Jehoram, he wants a God that only 
blesses and provides and only supplies all his wants. Uh, for him, that is for Jehoram, he wants a God who is made in his image. If you're a child of God, we know that his will must be our command. Uh, his provision in our life must be his will for you and for me. And we have to always remember that we are the ones who are made in his image and not vice versa. Only this kind of understanding of, go of God gives him the rightful place. And what we are seeing here in these verses is a misplaced or a wrongly placed confidence. Confidence in the flesh or confidence in God for the wrong reasons. It's at this stage that the king of Judah, who is a good king, remembers that he ought to have sought the advice and wisdom and direction from God. That brings us to a rightly placed confidence. A rightly placed confidence. Notice verse 10, uh, verse 11. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? First of all, they begin seeking direction from the prophet of the Lord. This should remind you of a similar incident in Jehoram's life, in his interaction with Ahab, Jehoram's, rather Jehoshaphat's life, in uh, during Ahab's time. A very similar incident takes place in 1 Kings chapter 22. And there also Ahab, Jehoram's father, is going to a war and uh, with the king of Aram and asks Jehoshaphat to join him, uh, which he again agrees. But he says, please inquire first of the word of God. Uh, that's in his last uh, dealing with the king of Israel. And then in chapter 22, verse 7, he says, Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? And so what you get a sense as you look at Jehoshaphat is one who desires to hear from the Lord. Earlier, remember, he had no desire to hear from the Lord. He had not sought the Lord, but now he desires to hear from the Lord. Better late than never. And when does he desire to hear from the Lord? After trouble arose. His first response to trouble is, I want to know what the Lord has to say about this. He's not concerned about man. He's not interested in what man has to say. He's not interested in sitting down and having a discussion or a pity party. Here's a man who wants to know what the Lord has to say about this circumstance. He wants a word from the Lord before he takes the next step. Uh, this is what rightly placed confidence looks like. Uh, to his question about a prophet, it's not the king of Israel who answers, but in the same verse, notice verse 11 in the middle. One of the kings, king of Israel's servants answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Yeah, yes, yes, we do have a prophet. His name is Elisha. He served Elijah. He is in the line of the prophets. And then what does Jehoshaphat say? He says the word of the Lord is with him. He recognizes that he has the word of the Lord. We need to go to him to get counsel and direction. Remember, this is the, uh, the king is the highest authority in the land. But notice their testimony about Elisha. He has the word of the Lord with him. He is a prophet of the Lord. He is a humble servant. He is in line and league of the other prophets. And he speaks the word of the Lord. He knows the word of God. And he proclaims the word of God. And notice the respect he commands. At the end of verse 12, we are told, So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Uh, it's not that they call this prophet to them. 
No, they went down to him. That's the kind of respect that Elisha commanded. Now, he's not the one to go to kings, but the kings are the ones who go to him. That brings us to the second aspect of seeking deliverance from the Lord. Now, if you notice, the text does not tell us in verse 13, uh, where, where was Elisha? How did they get to him? Um, whether he was traveling with them or not. None of that information is given to us. And none of that information is given to us because none of that information is important. And what is important is that he's there and he has the microphone, right? And so he speaks. He addresses the king of Israel. Notice verse 13. What do I have to do with you? Go to the prophets and of your father and the prophets of your mother. He, in a sense, carries the kind of ministry that Elijah used to carry. Uh, he knew the word of God, and he confidently and boldly spoke the word of God. He did not care if it was a farmer or a king. All were under the authority of the word of God. And then he begins by saying, what do you and I have in common? Answer, nothing. Nothing. Go, go and seek prophets of your father and mother, injecting a bit of sarcasm or sarcasm, why don't you get their advice, he says. Why not just seek his prophets? To that, the king of Israel says, no, for the Lord has called these three kings together to give them into the hand of Moab. He sees, clearly or not, that Yahweh is in control, uh, perhaps a slight improvement over his previous position as the king. Notice Elisha's response. As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look to you or look at you nor see you. Now that's a bold statement in front of a king who at least from a human perspective could execute Elisha. But as we have been learning from First and Second Kings, human perspective always bows down before God's will. And Elisha knows that. And notice in verse 14, it's not just the Lord. He says it's the Lord of hosts. Uh, this is the only time in this book, in the book of Second Kings, that this particular way of addressing God is mentioned. So we need to stop and ask ourselves and take notice of this attribute of God, the Lord of hosts. Uh, wh what does Lord of hosts really mean? You see, the Lord, uh, the letter Lord, L-O-R-D, capitalized, is Yahweh, uh, the self-existing and redemptive God of Israel. And then the word hosts is a translation of a Hebrew word that means armies, a reference to the angelic armies of heaven. That's another way of saying Lord of hosts is to say God of the armies of the heavens. It's a name that conveys the fact that the God of the Bible is not a local deity uh, or just the God of Israel. And in our circumstance, the God of Texas. Oh. He's not just the God of Texas or the God of America. He's the God of the armies of the heavens. He's God of the seen and the unseen universe. And that there is no spare of the human or the angelic life where the sovereignty and reign of God does not exist. Now, if that is the God of the Bible, then why would you even think of putting your confidence in flesh or in any other king, or in your horses, or in your gifts or abilities. 
He is the Lord of hosts and he is a living God. And it is before him that we stand. And secondly, notice that Elisha is not even willing to speak to Jehoram, verse 14. It was certainly not because of Jehoram, he says. It was because of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, uh, the one who sought the prophet of the Lord and the one who prioritized the word of God. He is, in a sense, Jehoshaphat is, in a sense, acting as a mediator here. Were he not involved in this conflict, Elisha says, I wouldn't even look at you, let alone speak with you. Or two quick implications here before we move on. First of all, this should remind us of our Lord Jesus Christ as our mediator. Jehoshaphat's role here, he doesn't speak much at this stage, should remind us of our Lord's role as a mediator. Uh, isn't it Paul in writing to Timothy, he says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. As you think of Jehoshaphat, it should take your mind back to what the Lord has done. In that sense, we are all in Jehoram's position. And we have all sought our own way. We have placed confidence in the flesh and in our natural abilities. And there's no way for us to be right with God except for a mediator. In the same sense, there's no way for Elisha to even speak or look at Jehoram except because of Jehoshaphat, the, the righteous king. But there's another implication here, and that is what Elisha is saying to Jehoram is this. Jehoram, you're beyond the help of Yahweh's word, if not for Jehoshaphat. And make sure uh, you're not placing yourself beyond the word of God. Make sure you're not placing yourself beyond the word of God. I think a quote that I didn't place properly is here that I want to read for us. Uh, this is a great author, by the way. And um, if you can get a copy of his commentary, get it. Uh, it's a wonderful, a wonderful uh, uh, piece of comments that he makes on in, in this book. Notice what he says about this. He says, this is a frightening implication. You can place yourself beyond the point of receiving direction or help from God. How might you know if you are in the danger of doing that? Well, if your pattern is to seek God like Jehoram, only for your convenience so that you are trifling with God. You may be interested only in escape from trouble, not in the path of discipleship. That was Jehoram. He wanted to use the word of God in the moment, but not to submit, it, submit to it long term. Jehoramites view the word of God as something for emergency only, but not for normal days. Let me stop and ask, any Jehoramites here? <laughs> word of God seen only for emergency and not for normal routine of life. Uh, for these people, God is simply the airbag in the disasters of life, which you hope you never have to use. Now, if that is your pattern, you may be placing yourself beyond the help of God's word. And that is the alarming danger of the word of God. Make sure you're not placing yourself beyond the word of God. All right, now that I've made it clear the kind of God we are dealing with and the one who is a mediator, Elisha says, go bring me a minstrel. 
these are individuals, or this might be an instrument, or a musical entertainer, in short. And when this musical instrument is played, God begins to reveal to Elisha the word that he wants him to know. Now we can apply this here and drive home the importance of music. Uh, and our church, you know, we, we love music. God's people love music. God's word talks highly about music. And there's something to be said about the impact that music can have. Now let's move on to the next one, which is securing deliverance from the Lord, verse 16 to verse 20. All right, here is what the Lord says. Notice verse 16. Make this valley full of trenches. You're not going to see any wind or rain. And in spite of that, as you make these trenches, you will see the valley filled with water. And that is the water you can drink and your cattle can drink. And then he adds this. Verse 18. This is but a slight thing in the sight of the Lord. Uh, providing water for you is no big deal. It's a minor work. It's a simple task, a very minor matter for the Lord. Well, the one who spoke and brought everything into existence, I mean, is it going to be a big deal to produce water without wind or rain? <laughs> Absolutely not. And then he goes on to say, and this you did not ask, and you did not plead for, but notice at the end of verse 18, he will also give the Moabites into your hands. He will give you water, and he will give your enemy also into your hands. Uh, he will keep you alive, and he will make you victorious. What a gracious and a merciful and an abundant in blessing God this is. And because this is true, you are to strike every Moabite city, he says, every major city. You are to cut uh, down every tree. You are to stop all springs of water and cover every piece of land with stones. In other words, you are to completely annihilate these Moabites. Notice verse 20. It just happened as the prophet spoke. At the time of morning sacrifices, water came by the way of Edom and the country was filled with water. What does the Lord do? He delivers them by providing an abundance of water. What an amazing miracle this is. As I think of us spiritually speaking, one lesson we can draw from this is the fact that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly about all we ask and think. Anyone here thinks they deserve more than what they have? Notice what the psalmist says. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities and who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. As you look back at your own life, you should and I should be able to look at it and say God has been able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that I've asked and thought. And that is the kind of God we interact with here, one who looks to have our full commitment and confidence. And that brings us to the last section here, which is from verse 21 to verse 27. A call for full commitment. 
Now all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, and all who were able to put an armor and older were summoned and stood on the border. They arose early in the morning, and the sun shone on the water, and the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red blood. Then they said, This is blood. The kings have surely fought together, and they have slain one another. Now therefore, Moab to the spoil. Uh, first of all, we see a deception, the deception of the Moabites. Uh, the Moabites didn't see any wind. They didn't see any rain. And so they summoned all their troops as they got ready to fight. And when they saw what was there on the land in front of them, they think there was no wind, there was no rain. So what is shining from the land must be the blood of these armies of these three kingdoms who came to fight against us. There might have been some disagreement and they just fought with each other. And so that's the blood that we see. Notice uh, they are unbelievers. None of them thought the God of Israel and the God of Judah is a living God. Surely he must have done something to bring this about. No, it didn't even enter their mind. Because not, that is not a God, the true God that they worshipped. First of all, then we see the deception of the Moabites. But then the defeat of the Moabites. Notice verse 24 and 25. For when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites arose and struck the Moabites so that they fled before them and they went forward into the land, slaughtering the Moabites. And thus they destroyed the cities and each one threw a stone on every piece of good land and filled it. So they stopped all the springs of water and felled all the good trees until in Kir Hariseth only they left its stones. However, the slingers went about it and they struck it. And so these Moabites, they marched towards the Israelites only to find out that it was actually water and that the Israelites were just waiting for them to come, not expecting the attack from them. But the defeat is not yet complete, although they are slain, Many of them are able to flee as well. Uh, the defeat is not yet complete, and the instruction of the Lord is not yet fully followed. In verse 25, we are told they go forth and destroy the cities. They do the things that the Lord has expected them to do in verse 19, but they don't go all the way. Uh, that is, they reach the capital, and they, they, then they stop. So it's not them fully following the Lord's instruction. That brings us to the last point in these two Verses that remain the diversion by the Moabites. And so the king thinks about what he must do. There are two more actions that the king of Moab takes to avoid an utter defeat. Notice what he does. He sees the battle becoming too fierce for him. And then first of all, he takes 700 men to break through to the king of Edom, which probably is the first kingdom that is in front of other two kingdoms in fighting. And so he takes them on, but they fail miserably. Notice verse 26. He took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. But they could not. That prompts him to take one last action, one last ditch effort, and that is this. He takes his oldest son, verse 27, who was to replace him, and he offers him as a burnt offering on the wall. Uh, this he does in full view of the enemies. And that leads to a very strange ending to the chapter and to the story. Notice at the end of verse 27. And there came a great wrath against Israel, and they departed from him and returned to their own land. 
So if you think of that ending, you think, whose wrath is on display here? And what particularly about the wrath made the Israelites depart and go to their land? Were they not here to defeat the Moabites? Were the, uh, these Moabites not retreating before? And the answer to that is yes, that is, that is true. This is, uh, this is a chapter that is not about how the king of Israel was wronged and how he, with the help of a good king and in seeking the word of the Lord from the prophet of the Lord, defeated the Moabites and how he lived happily after. That's not what this chapter is about. It's clear from the end of the chapter that the Moabites were not defeated completely. And so that is not what this chapter is about. So let me remind you what the theme is as we looked at it at the beginning. A victorious Christian, Christian life is not possible by trusting in human abilities or by partial obedience to the Lord, by, but by a total and complete trust in the Lord and in obeying his revealed word. And that's what this chapter is about. I've just stated it, but that doesn't mean I've shown it. For some of you, you're already convinced that's what this chapter is about. So that's good. That theme really explains what this chapter is about, but it still leaves unanswered the question about the wrath and the strange ending in this chapter. So let me close our time with mentioning some views about what this wrath is. Hopefully, it will help you understand the ending of the chapter. Now, there are four views on whose wrath this is and why this strange ending. Uh, the first view is that this is the wrath from Yahweh or the Lord. But if you look at verse 19, he it is the one who commands these Israelites and the southern kingdom and the Edomites to go and fight against the Moabites. So because he it is the one who sent them to fight, it cannot be the wrath of Yahweh. There's a second view. Uh, and in keeping with the first view, that this actually is a divine wrath, but it is not Yahweh's wrath, it's Chemosh's wrath, which is the god of the Moabites. But we know from the scriptures there's only one god. There's no such a thing as Chemosh or Molech or other gods. No, there's no other god. There's only one god. And so we can discount even and dismiss this second view. Then there's a third view, and it is that it is the wrath of the Moabites. You see, they... The troops see what Mesha, the king of the Moab, has done. He has burned his son alive on the wall. And it's a desperate act. And then they, the, the Israelites really respond to what this king has done. And the Moabites, on their part, see their king taking this extreme action. It fills them with energy. And they go out and defeat the Israelites. That's the third view. That is likely that may have hap happened, but there's a fourth view, and which is more likely. The fourth view is, is that the wrath is a human wrath, but that it's not displayed by the Moabites, but it's displayed by the Israelites. It is Israel who manifests the wrath. You see, the word there that is translated against, and there came a great wrath against Israel, that same word against can also be translated as upon. And so you can read, there came a great wrath upon Israel. They became angry, wrathful, really. And that is, it is the Israelites who display this wrath. But what is this wrath? It's a horror and anger and repugnance that the Israelites felt at Mesha's action. What was the action? Well, it's a child sacrifice that has taken place here. They are repugnant, they're, they're full of anger, and they're filled with horror. Hence, they quit the field without total victory. 
Now, what, what is the reason for such an odd ending? I mean, we were moving along well. We were looking at a victory for the three kings. And suddenly, you find these people have retreated. Well, here again, I think Ralph Davis helps. Notice his comment on verse 27. Verse 27 is a picture of seeking God in paganism. You have to coerce and manipulate, perhaps in the most costly way, he says. Even not very faithful Israelites are repulsed and horrified. Do you see the message for Israel here? It's as if Yahweh is, is saying, see where pagans go in their desperation. Now see where paganism leads. Do you savvy at all the matchless gifts you have in God who lives and hears and speaks and delivers without bribery? It's as if the writer is pleading, O Israel, do you realize the treasure that you have in Yahweh? You never need to resort to stuff like this. In Moab, you can bash your head against the wall or sacrifice your son on it. Both are equally futile. But to Israel, Yahweh has given prophets through whom one can receive the light and help that one needs. Here is the easy yoke of the word of God. What a relief biblical religion is. If you don't believe it, try paganism. I think that's the point of this passage. It is to reveal to them the horror of the object to whom you turn when in distress. Uh, who did Jehoram turn to? Well, he turned to himself. He put his faith in his flesh. Uh, who did initially Jehoshaphat turn to? Uh, well, he turned to himself did not seek advice from God. Who do you turn to in the regular circumstances of life and when you are in distress? And God's word tells us, call to me and I will answer and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Do you, you find yourself turning away from God due to whatever reasons? in times of distress? Or have you made it a habit to regularly and consistently seek him in the big things and in the small things of life? So when difficult circumstances come, that's the first individual that comes to your mind. So what can you take as an application here? And it's really a question. Who are you turning to? Do you find yourself turning to God as your first resort and seeking wisdom from brothers and sisters in Christ, looking to his word for advice? Well, how do you turn to God, you might ask? Will you seek him, obviously through communicating with him in prayer and through understanding and knowing him through his word? The more you are in the word of God, the more your first reaction to difficult circumstances is going to be, I need to turn to God. I need to communicate with him. I need to take this to Lord. I want to hear what the word of God has to say to me. And that's what it means to turn to God. When you turn to God and to his word for direction, what emerges, what it makes you is a man and a woman of conviction. I was uh, in a study module last month in, in Los Angeles at, at, at the TMS, at the seminary there. And um, one of the questions that was asked to Dr. D Dr. MacArthur was, what do you see the need uh, 
as you look around churches, and you know, he's almost 85 now, and he said, I see a lack of courage in men and women. Well, why do you see a lack of courage in men and women? I see a lack of courage in men and women because they lack conviction. Why do they lack conviction? Because there's no grounding in God's word. When will we see men and women of courage? When we see them holding and having convictions. So if I can take an application from this, a further application from here, it would be to go to God and to pray to him and say, Lord, make me a man, a woman of conviction. Make me a man, a woman of conviction. And when that happens, you're standing on God's word, not on your own word. Then you won't be necessarily giving in to temptations when difficult times come. Or you will be saying, what does God have to say? I need to know what God has to say on this. Who you turn to matters. For a believer, we have nowhere else to turn to but our Lord. I have a summary of all the applications here that you can write at your own leisure. Let us close our time in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the wonderful reminder from your word. And this is what we come to hear. And not to hear a speaker or to hear his thoughts, uh, but to hear what your word has to say to us. Like Jehoshaphat, uh, help us and give us the desire to to make it our first choice, make it our first priority to, to go to your word, to seek direction. That is what and to who we want to turn to. Lord, forgive us uh, for the times that we've turned to ourselves, looked at our own self for direction, for guidance. What a wonderful reminder this chapter has been uh, that we need to seek your wisdom. We need to seek you more than anyone else. And as you give us the wisdom to reach out to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are more mature in the faith, we are thankful for those resources as well. Lord, our prayer is that you would make us men and women of conviction. May that be true of me as an individual and for us as a class today and from here on. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.